This evening I'm uh, feeling grateful. Forty-two years ago when I uh, left Oxford, I was on road scholarship, <laughs> but I had come to the end of the road. <laughs> I was 24, but felt 104. I'd spent a life, not a bad life, but so much energy in achieving getting to success. And in my own little world, uh, you know, a certain measure of success. But feeling so weary. And I noticed I was, uh, as a student, drawn to churches sacred spots when nobody was there. Growing up in the South, I had a little problem with what I perceived to be finger wagon telling me me and my family were going to hell. And I was scratching my head and thinking, well, even though my dad was New York Jewish, mother Southern Baptist, they thought of how could they give their children a spiritual upbringing? So mom one day found in the paper, are you a Unitarian and don't know it? (laughs) She said, Mo, do you think we should try that out? Dad said, why not? So they went. There was only like ten of them. (laughs) But... uh, we were brought up to with this notion of uni, there's a unity in this mystery and that you can learn from all sorts of places. So when I was growing up, I learned, heard the names and to respect the names of uh, Moses and Jesus and, and Buddha, though I probably wouldn't have known it has an H in it at that time, and, and uh, Muhammad and Ram and Krishna and you know, we, we heard of saints and sages and tried to be in the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And, but in the society that I, I lived in, you know, that was controversial. Our church even got bomb threats and set on fire. Didn't do too much damage. But, but I, I sort of wrote off religion a bit. One of my monastic friends called it being should upon. (laughs) But, you know, should this, should that. And um, my religion, in a way, I was trying to be a good person, but achieving, studying and working out for, I was a wrestler. 
but by the time I got to Oxford, always going to the next big exam or tournament or, or acknowledgement, honor, award, And if I opened scrapbooks, and my mom was meticulous in uh, remembering and supporting mom and dad, encouraging us. They were beautiful. I could see, oh yeah, well, that's successful. But inside, weary. So being drawn to quiet places, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I found myself in, in empty churches or sacred spots, listening, sensing something that had been overlooked in, in my moving on and out all the time to the next success or averting the next obstacle. When I won a national championship in wrestling, which I'd been working at for years and walking on my hands for a hundred yards and doing 500 push-ups a day and climbing ropes and finally getting to the finals of this tournament, having my hand lifted up, and I have made it. Yippee! And it was a, a thrill. But how long does it... your arms stay up there? Literally. Not many minutes after that, my mind was worrying Who's coming back next year? Who will I have to fight to defend my championship? I sensed that uh, in the quiet that there was, there was something inward that I had overlooked. But I didn't really know what I was doing. The word enlightenment was a, <coughs> caught me. I, you know... After all, I went to Oxford, I saw the word light in there, so I thought, so when I would listen and be quiet, sometimes a light would appear, and I thought, oh, maybe that's it. But I didn't really know what I was doing. And I uh, heard about a master in northeast Thailand, in the forest, that you could go be with. And that uh, he had a few Western disciples with him, amongst many other Thai disciples. So I was thinking, oh well. After all, I've gotten a start on meditation, and I, d- I have had some, you know, lights, and. Uh, <laughs> I thought I could go and blow the roof off this enlightenment thing in a year. But just because I was humble, I thought I'd give myself one extra year. <laughs> Two max. And 40 year, two years later, I realized how naive I was of thinking how easy it was going to be, and yet I am filled with gratitude that there have been awakened ones, like the Buddha, who then shared 
was stirred by compassion to share his trials and errors so that we didn't have to go so much down so many blind alleyways. What we've been contemplating these last few days was very important in the Buddha's own awakening, this being with the body, breathing, this samadhi, cultivating gatheredness. It was a turning point. in his own struggle. He had spent uh, years in recollection at the extremes before he discovered what, what he called the middle, the balance. As a young prince, he had every pleasure, every delicacy. palaces for the different seasons. In the hot season, he had a cool one higher up in the mountains. He had palaces for the cold seasons, the wet seasons. His father, the, the, the king or the leader, saw to it that he just had uh, beautiful things. Refined things, refined food, but at some point it, it penetrated, a weariness penetrated. He realized that, uh, that all these subtle, fine things fade. The reality of old age, sickness and death penetrated his heart. He, he found himself re- recoiling when he, when he, when he really encountered what he came to call the heavenly messengers when he encountered an an old person. And it really registered that difficulty with moving. Can we relate to that? The, The groaning, the aching, the sagging, the wrinkling. And and part of him recoiled. But he saw that. And and he And he was ashamed. He, he said the vanity of, of youth left him in that moment. Because he realized, I'm subject to this. When he really encountered and reflected on illness, he said, but this is subject to that. The vanity, he said, of health left him. Yes, we appreciate health, but it, How vain to think it's ours. And similarly, when he reflected on the reality, the inevitability of death, of dying, this body born and dying. And he caught a certain revulsion. And he thought, this does not befit me. What am I being revulsed at? my own nature, the nature of this. And he said the vanity of life left him. And he wondered, just pondered, what, but what is trustworthy? 
Is there anything that's truly peaceful, truly undying? And then, you know, he explored with the, with the sages of the time. And there were some that believed that the sacred place was not here, it's somewhere else. Is that familiar? The idea that it's a, a heaven somewhere else, I mean, that's a nice thought, but it can also lead to, what can it lead to? This objectification, this just stuff to move around and get what I want. People are just in my way or maybe useful to me. Animals, creatures that are just for me. If we have the sacred somewhere else. But the, at the time of the Buddha, it was slightly different too, that that was around. But there was also the notion that this, this earth, this matter was somehow lower dragging us down because that's where you get caught up in desire and aversion and all this messy stuff and that the real pure stuff was up and out. So we also developed these quite, which I've never really studied, but uh, Olympic type disembodied states. Formlessness. infinite space, infinite consciousness, a realm of nothingness, a realm of neither perception nor non-perception, states where you're not in touch at all with the body. But he kept coming down. Then he thought, maybe I'm coming down because I hadn't cut the ties. So he started, which was also a tradition around him with some ascetics and self-mortification, starving himself, torturing himself, becoming more and more determined not to be moved by pain, learning to welcome pain. But there was great tension in that path. He had big-time energy going... He wasn't sluggish. He had a, a lot of mindfulness going in the sense of connectedness with the moment. In terms of the narrow definition of mindfulness, the awareness was connected. There wasn't wisdom yet, but it was, he was connected. No ease. And he was getting more and more emaciated and exhausted. When he scratched his stomach, he, he said he felt his backbone. When he rubbed his skin, the skin and the hair all came out. When he went to pee, he would fall over on his face. And he'd made great efforts. He knew, he was honest. I, who can make more effort? I'm not caught up in lust. I'm, in fact, he was caught up in pain. Just to, he was on the extreme of pain, the and the way the palace life was the extreme of pleasure, and he just wondered a question. He just paused. 
Might there be another way? That was the question he later told his disciples. He asked himself, might there be another way? And he asked that question and paused. Because he didn't know. A question doesn't have to have an immediate answer. A question can be an, a, a clearing for, hmm, might there be another way? And a memory arose, childhood memory. when he was a young boy in his father's kingdom on some festival day, I don't know, maybe a harvest festival, plowing festival. They don't give the details. He didn't give the details, but, you know, I think of festivals, speeches, gatherings, all kinds of foods and celebrations and and uh, good, good-natured stuff. Nothing bad going on, necessarily. But he remembered as a child that he withdrew. There's a word he used, viveka. Very important word in Dhamma. V-I-V-E-K-A, viveka. He withdrew, didn't throw stones, wasn't hating it, but he didn't want to, didn't want to get all involved in all the activity. He withdrew to sit under the shade of a rose apple tree. And his attention, his innocent child, like inquisitive mind turned inward to be with his breathing and when he had, when that memory rose he remembered that was a really peaceful state Because when he was with his breathing, he just relinquished, let go, withdrew from preoccupation with all that multiplicity, who's here, what they're having, who's talking to one, and just turned here to this body, in and out, in and out. And he remembered that suffusion through his whole body of fullness, radiance, ease. Everything coming together. In his childhood state, he probably didn't have the words for it. Later he called that ekagata. E-K-A-G-G-A-T-A, ekagata, which means, eka means one. Ekagata means unified. As opposed to the complexity, there's a unity. Everything just came into a wholeness, a totality. 
And then he, as the memory arose in the, all those years later, uh, when the Buddha-to-be was 35, and he thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure? He was doing all this ascetic practice. That pleasure is not exploiting anyone. It's not harmful. It's a blameless pleasure. He thought, yeah, if I get attached to it and want it to be all the time, there can be some suffering. But he thought, why am I afraid of that? And somehow the intuition arose, this is the path. This, this is on the track. This is on the way to this freedom I am looking for. The certainty arose. But also the realization I can't do this in this state I'm in. I mean, he was on the edge of death. Holding to this idea of I crush enough, endure enough, somehow I'll deserve it and break free. Cut the ties. And just at that moment when he realized, ah, he, he was then willing, a big change, big change in the Buddhism to be in his life, in the Bodhisattva's life. Just at that moment, the beautiful, sacred synchronicity of life, the maiden Sujata, who had uh, come to this, uh, frequented this holy tree that the Buddha was uh, sitting under later, all those years later, she had come with some milk rice to make an offering. And when she saw this emaciated monk, or whatever he was, ascetic, something stirred in her and she wanted to offer it. And he accepted it. As many of you have heard, much to the dismay of of Siddhartha's attendants, he had some fellow ascetics who, Siddhartha uh, Gautama, who later became the Buddha, was the great, he was the best. And they all knew when he cracked it, he'd let them know. And, uh, you know, it was all about being tough and starving yourself and even stopping breathing for long periods of time. And, and when they saw him accepting food from the hands of, a, I assume, was a beautiful maiden and, and not just, you know, a couple of grains of rice, milk rice, No, they just thought, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's gone down the road, what do they call it, of luxury, and they abandoned him. Siddhartha didn't mind. He trusted his, that the heart, the heart had brought up that memory and told him, don't be afraid of this. So he restored himself and then started practicing in a way that didn't reject this world, that didn't reject form, that didn't reject nourishment. And as Tanisra um, first reminded me how important it was that the, the woman, the female, offered that food 
just honoring that feminine, receptive, nurturing, compassionate principle as a ground for renewal. And he practiced, and he, uh, after renewing himself and using Anapanasati, and his Tanishra was uh, reminding me, us the, this morning, you know, the Buddha realized there's some factors that support, support this. Just to remember that they're, they're very important. Vitaka vichara. Vitaka is, is a thought. A thought that points, it's like a finger pointing. Vichara, which means she used the word receptive. But there's another element to it too that she touched on. Oftentimes they translate it as directed thought and and, uh, discursive thought. Now that sounds like writing an essay. Sometimes people uh, translate it as evaluation. Some people translate it as examination. All those words can be a little bit misleading because sometimes they might make it sound like you've got to do a bit of an essay. But the finger, the, the word, the phrase points to mind and then the charge like the palm of the hand that then connects, receives, touches. Or it can be like the thumb, uh, our dear friend Ajahn Sajito described it also as the thumb and the index finger that feel into something. Why is it when, have you noticed, if you're trying to hold on to something that's slippery, if you can't get a handle on it, keep dropping it? Anybody having trouble dropping the meditation theme? How do you find edges, ridges, markers so that the mind can hold it. That's how bonding happens. That's how connection happens. Vichara means receptive, but it means to feel into. That's what evaluate means. It means not so much thinking a lot about it, but feeling into the sensations, feeling into the rhythm. Then one identifies whatever it is one's directed the attention to, one's not just seeing the label, the, the label, the pointer, dissolves, and then that receptive, which has an active exploring quality to it, feels into. The two work together. That's how we get sustained. That word vichara, which can mean explore, is connected to vipassana. So even the calming practices for them to be good have to have within it a discerning element. So when one feels in, if one, as she was, um, Tanisra was mentioning this morning, if you're sensing that uh, things are too tense, as one feels in, one will, will notice, whoa, wow, what's the shoulders doing up by my ears? 
and my teeth are clenched. And I'm leaning forward. And I'm wondering, where's the bliss? <laughs> so you feel in, and then there, uh, there's a, and it's intuitive, there's an uh, adjustment. And the word, or the phrase, like bud, to, the word, or the phrase, dissolves. But its work has been done because it's directed the attention to wakefulness. Or it might even just be in or out. If I'm quite busy, I quite enjoy just the phrase, peacefully I breathe in. Peacefully I breathe out. Peacefully I breathe in. And that phrase is held lightly so that a considerable amount of the attention then, as the phrase keeps dissolving, goes to the receptive, exploring. There was a disciple of the Buddha named Sona, came from a wealthy family, heard the Buddha speak, heard about him, and thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be free from birth and death and from suffering. So he, he renounced the home life, went forth, ordained as a, one of the bhikkhus to follow the Buddha. He uh, wasn't a sloucher. He was, the Buddha talks about effort. I'll show you some effort. And he really loved walking meditation. And he walked and he walked and he walked back and forth and back and forth and continued to explore and explore. And he was doing it so much that his feet blistered and started bleeding so that he could just barely walk anymore. And uh, it's interesting how his life is mirroring aspects of the Buddha's life. And then the thought arose to him that was quite convincing. The thought arose, uh, (sighs) who could make more effort than this? You know, my family does have a lot of wealth and you can make merit with what you can do good things, do good deeds, I'll do good deeds, make good karma. And really, you know, probably this enlightenment thing is probably for next life. (laughs) I think I'll do uh, some good deeds. I mean, you know, there's the blood on the trail that just shows you this is not the way. And the Buddha... (laughs) heard him thinking, so to speak, and appeared before him and said, uh, Sona, is this what you were thinking? And he said, yes, Lord, but, you know, I'm just, I ran into a wall. And the Buddha said, didn't you used to play a musical instrument? They called it the vena in the scriptures. But supposedly it's some sort of lute, a stringed instrument. And the Buddha said, well, what 
how was the instrument when the strings were tuned too tightly? Was it playable? And Sona said, no, Lord, it, it screeched. And what about when they were tuned too loosely? No, not a good sound. It's not really playable. But what happens when you tune? Tune it, the strings just right. So too, Sona, tune your efforts to the theme. And with renewed Encouragement. He kept going. Many of our efforts are too, too much. Like my drive to always get to the next big good event. Why I was welling up with this incredible gratitude was just this practice that we're just doing these first few days. is how to take a true holiday, holy day, a, a, a wholeness, a blameless holiday, a holiday that doesn't harm anyone. And that if little by little, for the rest of our life, however long or short that is, we use moments to Remember, we don't have to always be going on to the next thing. We can viveka, we can, as we're doing now, let go. We're not dismissing, throwing away all that's out there, but we're subduing longing and distress with regard to the world, just for now, for the sake of healing, restoring, strengthening. When the Buddha reflected on the uses of this samadhi, the first use was a pleasing, how to learn to cultivate a pleasant or pleasing abiding in the here and now that's blameless. That in moments, just pausing, standing, waiting in a queue, waiting somewhere, sitting, lying down, moving, but not so much to get somewhere, but to relish the blessedness of here, now. That even can be our phrase, here, now. And the phrase touches the heart and then dissolves. Then the receptivity opens. Especially if it's including this body, this breath. The sense of self imagines that me, I'm separate. But, you know, me, I cannot live without breathing. Well, I'm independent, Kitty Sorrel. Just try not breathing. 
I don't need it. I'm not breathing. But notice that uncomfortable feeling permeating all the tissue. (coughs) Then breathe. Notice that flush through every cell. The coarse breath is the air coming in and out. That's a dimension, an important dimension of the breath, of the breathing. But it carries this vitality, energizing vitality that flows through the nervous system and nourishes our life. The word, the receptivity, and then the Buddha encouraged what's called piti, Tanisha touched on, which means rapture, but the core of it is learning to create a container to hold so that the energy can well up. It means to be interested. Interested is a receptive quality. It's a savoring. Even if it's uncomfortable, savoring that so that the opposite, when we're drawn out all the time, the energy is fractured, fragmented, sprayed. When we're cultivating this unification, we're making things more simple. We're coming here, now, interested, receiving, relaxing, savoring. Because many of us have such uh, stresses in our lives, we show up exhausted, but we might have a memory of some peaceful state from the last retreat, and we want to get there, get over this, get there. But that, all that exhaustion needs to be metabolized. That's why the breathing in and savoring it The long breath is a way to help us get here. A long in-breath, a long out-breath, consciously softening the eyes, the forehead, the neck, the shoulders, the body. One can use our phrase with a long in-breath, a long out-breath, but in time there'll be a natural refinement. And that's what the Buddha sometimes is described, what he means by the short breath. Yes, sometimes the breathing becomes naturally more shallow. A few long breaths can help us see if we're crimping. So some some of you have reported realizing that your, your way of breathing and posture was somehow holding your into a kind of timid. That sometimes a long breath and just checking our posture allows us to assume our place here, sitting on this magnificent Mother Earth with this mysterious consciousness, surrounded by an ocean of vitality that we have permission to breathe in anytime we want. You don't need to ask, sign up. We can breathe in as much as we want within the limitations of our body. And then breathe out. 
The in will notice energizes. The out subdues, softens. That's one of the wonderful tools for tuning. When there's sluggishness, more emphasis on the in-breath. There's agitation, too much striving, more emphasis on the out-breath. And as things get more refined, we might find there's naturally a being with the breathing in one place. That's sometimes called the short breath or the standing breath. If you're with the breath at the nostrils, you'll notice the air moving in and out, but one will notice the vibration, the temperature, as one vichara feels into, one can, with the help of the phrases or the numbers or or the sacred name, whatever we're using, we have a chance to relax into being here, not worrying about out there, over there, over there, resting in knowing how it is, just being with that sensation. The nature of awareness, non-judgmental awareness, patient awareness, when it touches something, it quickens the vibration. It purifies the vibration of the body. And one can stay there, or at the heart, or at the belly, and we all have different places where we might be drawn to be with the short breath and to just stabilize, even if it's just for minutes, moments, minutes. Having all the time in the world to be with breathing in. All the time in the world would be with breathing out. Don't be in a hurry to get rid of our phrase. Even the first jhana, the first profound level of peace when we're plugged in has vitaka, vichara, pitti, rapture, sukha, ease, and ekagata unification. One can be deeply peaceful with breathing in, breathing out, just a whisper in, out. And the vichara is just that Awareness that's that feminine quality that receives, connects, feels into. I'm not talking about gender here. I'm just talking about a quality of receptivity that's also alive. It's exploring. And that those thoughts don't get in the way. Then the Buddha encouraged us to also explore widening the lens, training ourselves to be sensitive to the whole body. Oh, I don't know, Kitty Sorrell, it, it's so nice. It, it's, I'm doing fine. <laughs> it, it is fine if we're in a limited place, but there's less resilience. The samadhi is more brittle and fragile when it's contracted around someone. There can be a centrality if you're with the breathing at the nostrils, at the heart, at the belly, that if it's very relaxed, then it's still blessing the whole body. 
the, it's not saying you can't still have a centrality somewhere, but, but he's encouraging when he says, train yourself to be sensitive to the whole body. He's encouraging an evolution of the practice that also widens so that the different, so that the healing can happen. That's another reason I'm so grateful. I ran into some heavenly messengers in Thailand when I got typhoid fever and almost died and then spent a decade quite sick, three years so ill I had to lie down, most of, almost all the time, but I had this practice of trusting that you could, that if an area is uncomfortable, it's calling for attention. Breathe in there and then widen the awareness to notice the tissue around that. To notice that which is not ill, the hands and the feet. Breathing in and out, letting that vichara, that exploring, it's guided intuitively. If things get wide and we get a bit too fuzzy, then we can also go back to a a smaller, what's called the short breath. It's a dance. But I notice a magic happens that awareness has a way of putting things in balance. Sukha means relaxing. Watch the desire to, to get there quicker. Just relax. And it takes time for the vibrations of the body little by little to metabolize our undigested exhaustion and restlessness. And we can, with skill, little by little, use this practice to tranquilize, to calm. That pleasant abiding. Even if we don't feel very good at it, a little bit by little bit over the weeks, months, years, what a tool. At any moment you can just stop and appreciate the blessing of coming to feet touching ground, to sensation. You'll notice maybe the head is a bit too hot because this is tight because of that. Not to worry, one breathes in receiving that fully, breathes out savoring just that. And the steadiness of mind being on sensation is stabilizing and steady. When we uh, practice little by little, sharing the blessing of the practice with the whole body, then it, it gives us a resilience. And then there's the blessing of knowledge and vision, which Tanisha touched on this morning. When the more stable we are than whatever we look at, it, its nature reveals itself to that can refer to extrasensory things, and, but it just means we get more intuitive because we're connecting, not just seeing things only through the tri- prism of someone's opinion or what somebody else said. When we're used to the naked, intimate, relating to, th- to sensation, to feeling, to the suchness of things, then understanding can arise. 
Another blessing is, is uh, mindfulness and alertness. We become present for our life. But the most profound blessing, that fourth blessing the Buddha calls, is that that samadhi then can be used to liberate us. When the heart is more composed, just here, through being with an in and an out and one step at a time, then the changing nature of things is so obvious. It's not like someone has to, are you sure about that? It's like if there's a hot cast iron stove and you have a drop of water and it drops on that, cast iron stove and it goes shh another drop shh it's so obviously here and gone and then when we're composed the, the sounds the dharma talks which you might like or you might not like vibrating and dissolving into the heart of awareness. And this moment has a cascading stream of sensations, sounds, sights, thoughts. And yet, all this change, we're hoping to get to a place in the phenomenal world where we've arrived. It's like standing in front of a waterfall and thinking you can just grab it. We can be in awe of it. So we can appreciate for the sake of healing and mindfulness moments of samadhi, but be patient. We're going to also be using this samadhi to recognize that every experience because of its vibratory changing nature can't really be claimed. And when we see that, somebody doesn't have to talk us into letting go. You don't have to be talked into letting go of a waterfall when you realize, or as the Buddha would say, if you're grasping at air, you're going to reap weariness. (laughs) At some point we realize, ah, so there's a letting be. And things still are what they are, but we've touched into what's been here all along. So I encourage us to be patient. And obstacles come up. Wanting to be somewhere else. Not wanting to be here. Oh my God, that am I going to spend eight days with a blasted back? My knee, which is big as a stadium? Ajahn Chah calls it the wanting and not wanting of the mind. You can call them hindrances. The Buddha called them classical hindrances. Desire, wanting something, aversion, not wanting, sluggishness, drowsiness, its opposite, restlessness, anxiety, worry, 
remorse, a kind of... and doubt, the big number five. Oh, I'm not sure if it's going right. And bless their souls, those teachers, they're doing the best they can, but you know. (laughs) I just don't think they can see into my heart. Now, if a Buddha was here, but he's dead. (laughs) You know, I should have just gone on a holiday. These things come, but our, our teacher encourages, don't be calling them hindrances. You can call them that. He said, they'll, they will teach you. Don't be in a too big a hurry. Yes, we're, we're returning to the breathing, but if you, you know, really fill yourself up against something, what is it? Oh, I'm so exhausted. We can even just name it. Drowsiness. Restlessness. No, I just don't like this. This is shouldn't be here. That's a different category. It shouldn't be here. That's called not wanting. It's aversion. And that might sound like that might sound like nothing, but that's not nothing. Something that's so much me, someone shared it in the groups today and I almost said, Hallelujah. It was so beautiful sharing the insight. Someone was caught up in something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And they were struggling with it, but they just thought, oh, it's that. And it's not it was destroyed, but it, it lost its power. It's like when our teacher, Ajahn Chah, we used to go on alms round in the morning. As monks, you don't have money, and so you rely for your nourishment on in silence, who wants to come out and put food in your bowl? Very powerful practice. In Thailand, walking out of the forest into the, through the, over the rice fields into the villages, and people would, just in quiet, the kids would spot us first. They would say, Pramalao, Pramalao, the monks are coming, the monks are coming. And people would stop as we came in the early morning. And they had cooked their rice for the day. And those who wanted to would take a pinch of rice and put it in your bowl. Wow. Or a half a banana. Or a few leaves. It's a kind of salad. Wow. You go back and you've been given this to encourage you to try to make use of your time as a monk to practice. So we'd go on alms round. It was wonderful. You'd be outside. And once with some monks were with Ajahn Chah, they went past some really large boulders. And he pointed and said, are they heavy? And the monks thought, oh, this is an easy one. <laughs> yes, venerable sir, they're heavy. And he went, nah. He said, they're not heavy unless you try to lift them. Now, when you're trying to wrestle with a back pain, it shouldn't be. That's called lifting a boulder. The restlessness, oh, God, there it is again. Look at her. She's sitting like a, like Kuan Yin. (sighs) 
so much dukkha comes from not wanting, sometimes just saying not wanting, letting it be. The weight comes out of it. So there's a little, that's a little vipassana through feeling into and checking what's going on and then we adjust and return. And I now allow the nature of things to reveal themselves. Don't overlook this breath. It might seem really mundane, but it was life-changing for our Buddha. And as my teacher said on the first time I met him, he said, when he encouraged me to go be with my breathing, I was a bit taken aback at first because uh, being reminded of my nose wasn't my favorite. <laughs> I grew up having people making fun of my nose. And uh, I had an English teacher that that was his mantra. Son, you have a nose like the keel of a ship. <laughs> I said, thank you for that. <laughs> but Ajahn Chah was saying, oh, being with the breathing. He said, if you understand one thing well, you'll understand everything. So I encourage us to be patient, to be kind, to tune the instrument, to let meditation be playing, like playing music. We explore. We make it our own. Don't be afraid of the hindrances. They become our teachers. So uh, I am so grateful I encountered the teachings of the Buddha And it is a privilege to be together with you all uh, practicing. So let's keep going for the welfare of everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.